Hello and welcome to the new food podcast, Food To Go. I'm your host, Bethan Grills, and as ever, I'm joined by the co-host, Joshua Minchin. Hi, Josh. Hello, Beth. Have you uh, taken to presenting the breakfast show on the radio? It's very, very BBC Radio 4, that intro. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. It was just very Tony Blackburn, you know what I mean? Oh, well, I thought since Scott Mills left Radio 1, there could be an opening. But now that you've said I'm Radio 4 voice... Or Radio 2. Radio 2, like quite mellow, kind of Saturday morning kind of vibes. Quite mellow. Got a coffee at home. All right. On comes the radio. I'll take that. It's not a bad thing. Okay, I'll take that. I, I Okay, yeah. All right then. You know, mellow. Maybe not cool, but mellow. I'll accept it. <laughs> So we are going into quite a serious topic for this episode. As our shopping bills become heftier, with inflation rising by 9% and food inflation growing by 6.7% since April this year, we can be certain that there'll be a huge impact on food security, the likes of which we are starting to see. The impact of inflation is rippling across the world, with some areas worse affected than others. According to the International Monetary Fund, places such as Sudan, Iran and Turkey are looking at a rise of more than 25%. Yes, but despite my jovial and uh, Mickey Turkey intro, there's nothing really funny about today's content, is there? It's a worry, it's a worry, but hopefully to understand a little bit more and maybe put some minds at ease or, or at least understand why we're seeing the price hikes that we are and the impact of the inflation, as you've just said. You interviewed two experts, didn't you, Beth? You're on your own this week. Yeah, it was my turn to to ride solo. Absolutely. Well, I'm absolutely buzzing to hear the interview. Um, I'm sure it's going to be brilliant. Shall I introduce the guests? Soon as I'm just speaking for a little bit. All right, get yourself some more airtime. There's nothing I love more than the sound of my own voice. So... On today's show, we have both Professor Chris Elliott and Dr. Ricky Folpa, both great friends of New Food. So listeners, you may well know Chris. He's the founder of the Institute for Global Food Security at Queen's University, Belfast, author of the Elliott Report, which laid out recommendations following the horsemeat scandal in Britain. And probably what do we describe as an overall food safety rock star? You want to be at an event when Chris enters the room. It's, it's like Bono or Bruce Springsteen's turned up. Dr. Ricky Volpe, however, no less glamorous. Before assuming his role at Cal Poly in California, teaching food retail, supply chain management, logistics and data analysis, Ricky worked as an economist at the USDA Economic Research Service in Washington, D.C. While there, he researched a variety of topics, including food price formation, competitiveness in the food industry and the healthiness of grocery purchases in the U.S. Ricky was also responsible for forecasting retail food price inflation at national level. Here's what they had to say. Very nice, Josh. Yeah, I know. It was good, wasn't it? Welcome to the show, Chris and Ricky. Hi there, Beth. And really uh, looking forward to our, our discussion with yourself and Ricky. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, you are, as I said, both so welcome. Ricky, I want to start with you um, on this particular topic. Can you give us some context on what inflation actually means and why it is that we're seeing such you know, record numbers? Sure, Bethan. 
Food price inflation is, in a lot of ways, sort of the normal way of the world. It's, it's actually unusual to see food prices not increase to some extent year over year. And in the United States, in 2016, we had food price deflation, but that was for the first time in, in 50 years or so. What's going on right now is a little bit unusual, though, because we have food prices increasing at a really accelerated clip, seeing food prices in the U.S. and elsewhere increasing faster than the prices of most other goods and services. And that's unusual because the food supply chain globally is developed to a point where we typically do not see food price inflation rising faster than other costs in the economy. There's a lot of reasons for this, but most of the inflationary factors that affect food prices have been pushing upwards and moving in that direction for quite a long time now, even before the pandemic. The big ones, and we can dig into any of them later on if you want, uh, energy prices are sky high right now. There's a lot of transportation issues that's affecting truck and intermodal transportation. There are uh, a lot of labor issues in the U.S. and globally that's driving up labor costs and making uh, labor more scarce. And severe weather is starting to really affect commodity prices. And in turn, that's rippling through the food supply chain. Absolutely. And, and certainly want to touch on, you know, a number of those areas that you mentioned, Ricky. But I want to focus on one in particular, and that is you know, civil unrest. We're seeing incidences happen, protests breaking out in places such as Peru, Palestine and Greece. What is the situation in the States at the moment? I won't tell you that there's no unrest in the United States, but most of what we would call civil unrest in the U.S., right now is probably more political in nature than related to the price or availability of food. The hard numbers on this are kind of hard to come by, but widespread food shortages are not really an issue in the United States. They can, we continue to have, by and large, a safe, bountiful, and affordable food supply chain, despite the issues that we've been facing. Independent supermarkets have been at about 75 to 80% of their full stocking capability. The larger regional and national international chains have been closer to 90-95%. So we really haven't reached any sort of a tipping point where most consumers are genuinely concerned about being able to find or afford food here in the United States. Why is that? Why are you guys, you know, so much more secure? Well, the United States has one of the most technologically advanced and efficient food supply chains of anywhere in the world. So the United States, from California through Arizona, all across the Sun Belt through Florida, grows a huge number of specialty crops. The breadbasket of the United States grows all the grains and oil seeds. So, so many of the foods that are sort of foundational to our diets are grown right in the United States. And on top of that, the United States engages heavily in trade with partners all over the world to sort of bolster that food availability and make sure that a lot of these foods are available year round to their consumers. The production sector is incredibly efficient at getting that food off the vine out of the ground. The manufacturing sector has become very efficient at making food at a relatively low cost and making food that is storable and shelf stable and lasts a significant amount of, amount of time. So the United States has really been well equipped to provide food that is bountiful and affordable for the people. It doesn't mean we haven't had challenges. It doesn't mean we haven't had times where it's been very difficult to find, say, eggs or flour. But increases in hunger is not something that we've had to deal with yet in the United States, fortunately. 
And Chris, you know, let's head over to, you know, the UK perspective here. You wrote a column for New Food in April warning that civil unrest may not be far away in the UK. You know, four months on, what are your thoughts? Thanks, Bethan. It was really interesting, you know, to hear Ricky's summary of the US. And there's some things that are similar, but there's a lot of differences as well in the food systems. I think in terms of of the UK. There's all of those same pressures that Ricky talked about. I think the conflict in, in Russia Ukraine has had a bigger impact on us. And that's because the UK is a big importer of foodstuffs, over 40% of the food that comes into the country. Uh, we, we've got the added pressures around Brexit and the fact that it's more difficult to trade with other parts of the world, particularly Europe at the moment. And I think where, where Ricky talked about the huge amount of self-sufficiency, particularly in, in fresh produce, we are unbelievably reliant on mainland Europe for that. And they are just going through catastrophic crop failures at the moment, all weather driven. What we're not dealing with is a one-off here. This is getting more and more serious year on year. And some people talk about climate change. I really talk about climate crisis now. And then, Beth, and you talked about, you know, the civil unrest, and it was something that I had predicted maybe four or five months ago. And that prediction was based on looking at a very large data set going back 50 years. And, and what the data tells us, when food prices increase, civil unrest increases as well. They're very closely correlated with one another. And you rightly stated some of the things that are happening in different parts of the world. And you're actually the most severe at the moment is actually in Sri Lanka, where, there, where the whole food system has collapsed. Are we seeing civil unrest in the UK, which I think was your question? And the answer is not yet, but I still predict it will happen. And just recently, you know, if you think about the UK, there is a whole new movement has started off up and it's called Enough is Enough. And Ricky, that's just about the costs of everything. And people are saying is... We can't afford to heat our homes. We can't afford to eat. We can't afford. So food is part of that. And then when you start to think about the inflation that we're having in the UK at the moment, again, it would be interesting to compare numbers, Ricky, but UK inflation sits about 10% overall, but food inflation is over 20% at the moment. And it is the biggest single factor, 20% food inflation. And you said, again, in the US, you know, there aren't people going hungry. I will tell you there's a lot of people going hungry in the UK now. And just over the, so far this year, two million people have moved into being food insecure in the UK just in six months. Two million people on top of six million people who were already there. So you can see there is a lot of differences about what's happening in the US versus the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. And as you said there, not, not to put you on the spot here, Ricky, but, you know, do you have numbers that we can compare to Chris's stats? Some of those numbers are wild. Yeah, we do. I mean, you know, in the U.S., well, we have up-to-date numbers on food price inflation in the U.S. And while they are striking from our own historical perspective, they are lower than what's going on in the U.K. And I would guess a lot of that has to do with like Chris said, a greater reliance in the UK on imports, especially from, you know, from mainland Europe and from around the world, where, you know, one of the major problems that's been facing the food supply chain really since COVID has been 
a real slowdown in international trade and the ability to import and effectively see food flow from nation to nation and continent to continent. But no, right now in the United States, grocery prices have increased about six, seven percent since the start of the year, and they're up a little over seven percent. Well, okay, everything depends on how you measure it. Um, year over year, the food at home CPI is up about 12, 13 percent from where it was a year ago. So we are looking at double digits, but the year over year comparison is always a little funny because it's, it's, it's a function of what was going on a year ago. But yes, we are seeing food price inflation right now that is three, even four times higher than our historical year-over-year average. So so we are double digits and we are seeing significantly higher food prices. Okay, so it seems that we're in similar boats, but obviously in the UK, it, it does seem to be, a, you know, well, considerably worse. And that is because we we haven't got the, the same resilience. I mean, is that fair to say, Chris? I mean, and is there any way that we can stop being so reliant on, on other places? Yeah. I mean, it's a very good question, Beth, and it's a very difficult one as well. We really have to think about long-term government strategy in the UK Mm. because we used to only import about 30% of our food. It's now reached 40%. And actually, some of the the government mantras said, actually, we should go to 50%. (laughs) And, you know, it's something I am unequivocally worried about because I just think it is a very bad philosophy. And the reason behind that, Ricky, is some of the politicians said, You can produce food more cheaply in other parts of the world. And actually, to keep food inflation down, we just import it. And what they're saying is, oh, we should be bringing a lot more food in from the United States, a lot more food from here and so forth. It is unbelievably short termist. And I think another factor that we're seeing is there are quite a number of countries who previously exported quite large amounts of foodstuffs. They are reducing the amount of of food exports as well. And the reason for that is to look after the indigenous population as well. So things are changing, changing quite quickly. And what you cannot do, there isn't a button that you press to say, let's grow more potatoes. Let's it's got to be long term strategy. And actually in the UK, week in, week out, lots of farmers are going into bankruptcy here to turn that tide around is going to take a massive change in government strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we are all sort of waiting a bit with bated breath for the um the UK government to intervene. I mean, for me it's been the 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 rising energy bills that have been such a, a concern. And I've you know I've been seeing that you know rising every month. I'm just hoping that they do, you know, intervene with that, intervene with with food. I mean, we've talked a lot about obviously kind of perhaps the potential for rioting here and and for obviously, you know, an increase in food poverty. But Chris, I also wanted to pick your brain as a food safety expert. You know, do you anticipate there to be other issues on the horizon with food inflation on the rise that could influence the safety of our food? Unfortunately, the answer to that, Bethan, is yes. I mean, that there are going to be significant problems. They're already starting to happen and probably will get more severe. So, for instance, there is, you talked about that burgeoning energy costs, and already I'm hearing people are not cooking the food as they used to cook it. (laughs) So, automatically, you get food safety risks. People are thinking it's a good idea to change the refrigerator from four degrees to eight degrees because you know what? You're using less energy. You're making food less safe. I think the third biggest factor is, you know, 
if you're trying to look after yourself and feed your family and you look to see what you've got in the cupboards and the expiry date ran out two or three or four days ago, what are you going to do? Are you going to get rid of that food? Are you going to let your kids go hungry? And this is an unbelievable situation that we have got in terms of conflict between being food secure and insecure and feeding safe or unsafe food. It is an Im- impossible situation. And I know that, you know, Chris, with your collaboration, we launched a series of polls and we'll be releasing a report very soon, which you've written that also reveals, you know, the five grand challenges of food safety and highlights some of the results of that, of those polls that we did. And we did see some shocking answers, didn't we? I mean, I guess, you know, I think I'm, I'm producing some statistics and information that's maybe surprising you, Ricky, and I'm not in a good way. But if I told you one of the main newspapers, the daily newspapers in the UK, recently ran a big story about, is it safe to eat mouldy food? That was a debate in the UK. And there was an expert, I would love to actually talk to that expert to say, yes, it's probably okay. Maybe just cut off the mouldy pieces. I would love to get that expert into my office and I would love to feed her with mouldy food, see how long she likes it for. I mean, Ricky, is there anything, you know, happening in the States? Is this, you know, a a similar story or are you guys, you know, you sort of reeling at these these anecdotes? Chris keeps on, uh, yeah, teeing up anecdotes and stats that I can't match. (laughs) Yeah, a couple of things come to mind sort of related to food safety issues. Two factors that have been affecting the U.S. food supply chain for really most of the year are related to, well, Food safety concerns and, and also just specific threats to commodities grown in the U.S. had a major, major avian flu outbreak in the U.S. I'm sure it's made you know international news. So that's that's you know in the effort of maintaining the safe food supply chain, we've had to uh, we've seen massive, massive destruction of our egg laying hen population and our egg inventory and all of that. One inflationary number that really pops is that retail egg prices in the U.S. now are expected to be up 25 percent in 2022 compared to 2021. And that's almost entirely due to just a slash in the supply and poultry prices are up in a huge way as well. Another story that's really starting to get attention, but if things keep on going on this path, it's going to result in a sea chain how a sea change in how citrus is grown in the U.S. is uh, the citrus greening that's affecting Florida. So Florida and to a lesser extent other parts of the southeast United States really provides citrus for manufacturing for much of the world, certainly U.S. and beyond, orange juice and all of that. And, you know, there's a disease, I'm sure both of you are aware of it, it's called citrus greening. It's from an invasive pest. Every year is resulting in in fewer and fewer citrus trees in Florida, and no one really has a solution to it. So that's not food safety per se, but it's a direct threat to a commodity that is sort of foundational to the food supply chain. I guess one more point I would add on that is that it is increasingly common sort of to chris's point about about you know the awareness of you know is it safe to eat old food or moldy food one thing that that becomes increasingly clear here in the united states is that we could do a much better job of making sure that we have a population that is food literate because taking steps in that direction through public and private partnerships i'm a big advocate of that in terms of making sure that people understand how to prepare 
and purchase foods that are compatible with healthy diets, how to store food, how to mitigate and prevent food waste. I would like to see steps in that direction, if only because it is well known that a huge, massive share of food waste in the United States is simply a result of of people buying the wrong stuff in the wrong quantities at the wrong time and preparing it the wrong way and never going about eating it. So I think steps in that direction would go a long way towards ameliorating that problem. I absolutely agree with you there, Ricky. And it's something that we see in the UK as well. Uh, I think it's 60% of food that is produced that's that's wasted, that is wasted in the home, 60% of it. So, you know, one third of all food and then 60% of that is happening in the home. And I do think, you know, it is because we don't know how to store food you know we don't we don't know about preservation techniques so you know obviously what can go in the freezer for how long and there is an education that is required there and equally you know in you know and conversely chris you were saying you know people eating food past it's used by i mean that is an impossible situation as you said do you let you know your family go hungry or do you eat food past its use by i mean do you think people are aware of the dangers of eating food past its use by and i must stress we're saying used by here not best before date because again there is a, a miseducation that's quite widespread between those two dates and we're seeing a lot of supermarkets in the uk actually removing the best befores because it is contributing to food waste it was a very long-winded way of asking you a question Chris about whether or not people you know realize you know the dangers of eating food gone past its use by date I think you know you covered a lot of different ground there there Bethan and you know what Ricky was talking about about the about the education piece is absolutely correct the fact that there's a lot of food waste in the home absolutely correct but do you know what we cannot abdicate responsibility from the big retailers for that as well have you ever tried to shop for one person mm. you just can't do it now you know it comes in packs of twos fours and eights and there is a lot of the population actually are single and shop for themselves so there it's even how food is packaging actually contributes to waste as well in terms of people understanding sell by dates and use by dates, it's utterly confusing, to be honest with you. And I know I've had to talk to people to try to explain what a sell by date is, what a use by date is. And also, some of the foodstuffs that you get a use by date, it is absolutely bonkers, okay? And, you know, so for instance, you know, I had some nice broccoli that I bought and I took it out and, and the use by date, you know, was up on it. And I was just thinking, well, there's no risk associated with this. But, you know, if I've taken a piece of meat out of my fridge and it had been four or five days past the expiry date, I know there is a real risk associated with that because of all of the issues about meat stocks. It's not easy, to be honest with you. And again, some people in the UK said, all you need to do is apply the sniff test, okay? Oh. Sniff it, and it's out of it. If it's, you know, sniffs it, if it smells okay, it's probably safe. And you just go, oh my God, you know, can you really smell botulism? You know, can you smell salmonella? I don't think so. So, you know, I think this onus on people taking responsibility is right. But you know what? It is a very complex area in terms of food safety, what you can eat, what you can't eat. And it really comes back to when you put so much pressure on people to think about I am going to eat after this expiry date because if I don't eat this or particularly my children will go to bed hungry. 
Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I completely agree with you there, Chris. I think I never even thought about that, about the packaging, but you're, you're completely right. Everything is designed for two people. So retailers, I urge you to listen to this podcast and to this message and make things more available to people that to people that are eating alone because you know it's not just people that are that are single it's also i eat alone on a few days a week as well you know it's that's going to affect a lot of people and um i think that's a really valid point one more piece of information about that and again i i haven't been in the us for a few years for for obvious reasons but what has happened in most of the major the multiple retailers in the uk there is no meat counters, there's no fish counters, there's no cheese counters anymore. Everything is pre-packaged now. And the reason for that is the supermarkets realise it's a much cheaper way to sell those commodities than having to employ people to sell you. If you wanted two sausages, if you wanted two pieces of bacon, you could previously do that. You can't now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my technique for anyone that is listening and wondering, well, what do I do with those spare sausages is to open it up, use two sausages, put the rest in the freezer, which is perfectly fine to do before the uh, the use by is, is up. And if you do it on the day of opening it. So let's move on to some some other issues here. Ricky, you mentioned, you know, several things that were also um, impacting, you know, food security and that was transportation energy prices climate change can we hear a little bit of your thoughts on those areas sure i'll start with transportation because i don't know if a lot of people understand especially in the united states and i'd actually be curious uh to hear if chris has a perspective on what perspective on what's going on in the uk in the u.s truck transportation is rapidly approaching crisis mode everything in the United States with respect to refrigerated truck transportation is moving in the wrong direction. So the number of drivers is going down, the average age of drivers is going up, truck availability is going down, and truck rates are increasing even faster than food price inflation. According to the Agricultural Marketing Service, in the last 10 years, long haul refrigerated truck rates are up something like 68%. I mean, that's a shocking number over that period of time when you compare it to the increases in other rates that affect food prices in the US. And nobody really has a solution to it. There's really nothing going on either with the, the government or with the uh, the trucking companies themselves, the industry, to sort of um, improve working conditions for truck drivers, attract younger drivers, uh, do anything to sort of uh, you know mitigate these soaring um, truck rates. And it affects the food supply chain in ways that people don't always think about. It's not just that truck rates have become more expensive and therefore food prices go up. It's increasingly common that producers in California growing specialty crops, fruits and vegetables, have something that is ready to go and ends up, you know, being rolled back into the earth simply because there was there wasn't a truck available to come pick it up, that sort of thing. So it's it's contributing to food loss and food waste. And there are some larger companies in the US, Walmart comes to mind, the Albertsons company comes to mind that are making some investments in driverless trucks, um, because that seems to be the most obvious solution to this in the long run. But 
a United States where that is a widespread reality and where it conforms to the regulatory state and, and interstate travel, in my view, that's still a long way away. It's pretty much all bad news. I obviously don't have any solutions to the problem, but truck transportation is a huge problem. You touched on energy. Everybody knows that crude oil prices have been really, really high, surely affecting energy prices all around the world. But you know, people should be aware that when energy prices go up, that affects every single segment of the food supply chain. So it's a compounding effect. It drives up the cost of agricultural production and harvesting and manufacturing and storage and temperature control. Every single aspect is affected. So there's sort of a, a multiplier effect there when energy prices go up and they've been high for quite a while. And it's it's worth stressing that so far, at least in the U.S., we've seen food price inflation in the perimeter of the store a lot higher than in the interior of the store. But the extent to which energy prices affect packaging, storaging, manufacturing, processing, we are there are going to be inflationary impacts hitting the center aisles of the supermarket that we still haven't seen yet. And we will be seeing through 2022 and into 2023. Severe weather and climate change is a whole other long discussion. I'll just say that another sort of looming factor, especially here in the US, the ongoing drought in the West, especially in California where I live, we still haven't really seen those impacts on food prices. That's still coming. You know, the impacts of seeing acreage and production drawing back in California and some tough decisions being made there and the increase in water prices and decreases in water availability. So if I could sum up everything that I've said in the last couple of minutes, it's that inflationary pressures remain, in some cases are intensifying. And um, I don't think we're headed towards any sort of normal level of food price inflation anytime soon, at least not here in America. Thank you so much, Ricky. It's, you know, really, really useful insight there. And um, you invited Chris, obviously, to get some comparative detail. Chris, what are your comments here? So, Ricky, it's your turn. You have outstanded me, okay? <laughs> yes. Phenomenal statistics about transportation. I don't have the equivalent, but give me a week and I'll get them, okay? All of those things that Ricky talked about, they're exactly the same that, that, that we're facing here in terms of really it's the breakdown of the coal, coal supply chains for, for all of those factors. What we have, we've got an additional issue in the UK. It's back to Brexit because a lot of our truck drivers came from mainland Europe. And guess what? They're not welcome here anymore. So they've all gone back home again. And that, that's really a compounding factor. And then let's start thinking about real solutions now. If I give you the example, we've got a wonderful artisan yogurt company, OK, here in Northern Ireland. And I was in a, a, a retailer right down in the southwest of England. And guess what? I could buy that lovely artisan yogurt, okay? In my local retailer that I go to, I can buy this beautiful yogurt, artisan yogurt that's produced in the southwest of England, okay? This is not sensible, okay? So we're moving food around that actually doesn't need to be moved around, okay? Now, the reason this happens is about choice, and we are spoiled for choice. You know, Beth, and I bet you if you go into whatever supermarket you normally go into, you will be able to choose from 40 or 50 different types of yogurt, okay? If you think about the, the innovations in the German retailers, Aldi and Little, they have much, much fewer numbers of SKUs, really much, much smaller choice. And that's why they can sell things so much cheaper. 
what is very quietly happening by stealth in the UK, the multiple retailers are slowly but surely reducing the number of SKUs at the moment, okay? I, I saw recently Tesco's have reduced 200 or 300 SKUs. One of the biggest reasons for that is transportation costs. And I do think there will have to be this relationship between choice and cost as well. And you know, the big benefit of this, we can start to really thinking of going back about regional foods and, and eating foods that are produced in your own region now. That is one of the, I think, the potential upsides to all of the problems we're talking about. I have noticed this about items. I've bought something one week and then the next week it's not been there. I thought, oh, it'll be there the next week. It's still not there. I just didn't put two and two together. Maybe that was incredibly naive of me, but you were so right. They are definitely limiting um, SKUs in in UK supermarkets. And now I know why. (laughs) So thank you. (laughs) We've been very pessimistic during this podcast and and you know fairly so because this is a very serious topic it is affecting a lot of people in very severe ways but I did read that world grain prices are finally starting to fall you know we obviously saw a, a surge as a result of the Russia invasion on Ukraine but Apparently, the UN's FAO food price index is stabilising. Does this mean, and I'm anticipating that perhaps not, does this mean that we are over the worst and we can expect things to return to normal? Chris, but we'll stay with you and then Ricky will jump over to you. So you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the World Food Price Index is largely driven by the cost of cereals and particularly wheat, actually. And then, you know, the the impact of the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine had a massive impact on the price of wheat. Now, there is also people in the world have got great opportunities to make vast amounts of money in speculation. Okay, and a lot of that that increase in prices was by a very small number of traders making loads of money. Okay, (laughs) and that's just the nature of the beast. And it was interesting that the price of of cereals, particularly wheat, started to fall quite closely as soon as there was even information that Turkey were brokering, brokering a deal between Ukraine and Russia. Okay, There was no more availability there, but the speculators were starting to think about there's going to be more cereals coming on to the marketplace now. Now, can I tell you the really bad news is that I've been tracking what's happening in Ukraine really carefully. And the amount of wheat and other cereals and oils actually leaving Ukraine is tiny. You know, I calculated there needed to be four ships per day, each of them carrying 30 to 40,000 tons, has to leave Ukraine to release that material there. So far, six ships have left the Black Sea ports. So I do think the prices will start to increase again. And the likelihood for that agreement between, you know, the agreement that was brokered by Turkey, it could fall down tomorrow because of the of the, the nature of, the, of the, the bloody war that they're involved in. Thank you so much, Chris. And Ricky, what are your thoughts here from a US perspective? Yeah, I absolutely think... I think, you know, we'll start on a positive note. I do think that we're we're coming over the worst of it in terms of inflation. So inflation seems to have peaked and is coming down. 
But what's not always clear to everybody is that inflation coming down doesn't mean food prices coming down. It just means food prices increasing at a slower rate. So we've sort of covered a lot of the reasons why food prices, especially in the U.S., have been propped up for so long. And and, uh, I personally don't see really any of those inflationary factors turning around or going away. So, you know, my prediction for food price inflation, we're on track for average food prices to increase at a clip that's about four times the rate of normal in 2022. This is just a guess. I'm an economist, so my guesses are usually wrong. But like, I think it would take a really, really surprising development for us to hit normal food price inflation in 2023. And I think it's more likely that we'll be looking at on the order of four to five percent food price increases in 2023. So about double or even a little bit more than double normal for most of the reasons we've talked about. Energy prices are coming down a little bit. That's good news. But for most of the structural problems facing the food supply chain, labor shortages, transportation kinks, I'm not seeing any great solutions being thrown around for the short term. So I'm not optimistic for any sort of a return to the new normal within the next year. Thank you so much, Ricky. And I'm going to, you know, come to a, a towards our conclusion of this podcast by bringing up the word recession. We've been hearing a lot about this in the UK. What will this mean for the food industry and the consumer? And how does inflation and, and recessions differ work together? You know, there's there's a lot of words being thrown around here. Can can we have some clarity? Chris, I'll come to you first. No, I am deeply worried because I'm going to talk about something I know very little about to an economist who knows lots about this, okay? <laughs> To me, there are massive inflationary pressures, okay? And, you know, Ricky summarised it very nicely. They're not going away quickly, okay? And then in terms of the recession, because of a lot of the issues that we talked about, about energy, about uh, labour shortages, you know, those are recessionary factors that are coming into play. You know, if you look again on a global basis, which countries are currently in recession? Well, it's Russia, it's Ukraine and the UK. We are in the mire, to be honest with you, because we have got all of these global factors going on. And then we were, you know, trying to commit Harry Carey at the same time because of Brexit. You know, we're in a dreadful, dreadful position. And we are not going to come out of this quickly, to be honest with you. I think all of those different challenges that we have all talked about, they're going to persist for the rest of this year, 2023. But I can't finish on a bright note to say and the UK will be coming out of it after that. I am just very, I lack confidence in terms of the direction of travel we're going on in terms of our economy and and our, our policies in terms of food security in the UK. Thank you so, so much, Chris. And, you know, I thought you did very well there. (laughs) So, Ricky, obviously, as the, you know, the expert in these kind of matters, I know you aren't in the UK. You you are, as you said, in California, in the United States. But can you give us a little bit of an education, I suppose, in layman terms about, you know, you know, what a recession is? How does it how does that sort of relate to inflation? Are they anything to do with one another? Oh, sure. Uh, They're absolutely related. But the relationship between economic downturns and, you know, recessions with sort of like the food supply chain, especially groceries, is a a little bit unusual. It's, It's almost unique. In fact, the grocery sector has an almost 
counter cyclical relationship with economic strength, you know, in most developed countries in the world. Right. And so what that means is if we enter into a recession or a cool down or a slowdown, that's actually a boost for demand for groceries. So a lot of categories of customer spending fall during a recession. All of the hallmark marks of a recession is a decrease in customer consumer confidence, increase in unemployment, decreases in wages, decreases in real income, decreases in savings, right? All of these things play out during recessions. So for most categories of consumer spending, you think about leisure, sports, recreation, all electronics, even education, most of these spending categories fall during recessionary periods. But grocery spending increases because people facing this downturn, facing a decrease in confidence, shift away from the restaurant and towards the supermarket. So to sort of put in as positive a note as I can, what typically happens, at least in the U.S. during recessions, is that food prices actually increase a little bit, uh, and that's driven up largely by demand. So it actually tends to be a almost counterintuitively period of uh, increased profit margins for retailers. Uh, but the good news is even for consumers is that the retail sector has adapted and evolved over time such that consumers who are looking to save money, to buy groceries as inexpensively as possible for whatever reason, due to you know recessionary concerns or whatever, those options have really propagated in the US. They've really increased through buying in bulk, buying private labels, you know, all these sorts of different options that would take a whole other podcast to dig into. But so recessions in grocery and food spending tend to create a lot of opportunities, both for retailers and consumers. I don't mean to downplay the challenges that recessions pose in general, but the situation is unique for grocery. Thank you so much, Rich Ricky. That is, you know, really, really like great explanation of that there. And you know, looking at the the states, are you hearing rumors or of any recession, or is this something that you know you guys are? It's not even a thing at the moment. Oh, I wouldn't say it's not a thing. I would just say that every, so every recession is different. Every recession in the United States that we've had during my lifetime, and especially during my sort of professional lifetime, have all been markedly different from one another. Depending on your definition of a recession, we're technically in one now, but it feels nothing like the last recession, largely because our economy has been growing at a pretty fast clip, basically, you know, since the lockdowns ended in the United States, wages have been increasing in real terms, and we're at or near historically low unemployment rates, right? So the economy has been looking and feeling by most metrics very, very healthy for quite some while, and we've seen moderate, very, very moderate drawbacks in GDP growth and very, very slow increases on unemployment. So technically, the metrics are moving in that direction. We're absolutely hearing about it at the food conferences when you talk to folks in the industry, when you talk to academics. But when you think about what are the impacts of recessions, like I was just talking about, how do impacts affect consumer behavior and in turn affect the way these retailers are behaving? those mechanisms have not been kicked into place yet in the U.S. And we're just watching to see, you know, really every month when the new CPI and BEA numbers come out, we're just looking to see what direction are we heading. Because in my view, if this very slight downturn flips back up, I don't know that we'll see any real recessionary impacts here in the U.S. 
Thank you so much, Ricky. Um, and, and staying with you and, and sort of coming to a close now, this is probably a, a tough question, not that any of these questions have been easy, but if you had sort of one piece of advice to give right now, what would it be? Right. The advice here is for folks in the industry. Okay. Again, being an economist, I can't boil it down to just one, but here's what I will say, because I've been saying this basically ever since COVID and before. In the short run, anyone in the food industry needs to be using their data. So use your data, use your historical data, track your data, maintain your data, keep it clean, and use it to make informed decisions. I cannot stress that enough because it strikes me almost every day the extent to which there are food companies that are not doing this effectively and i'm not talking about fancy high level regression framework stuff just taking a look at what has happened in order to inform decisions on pricing on purchasing on basically you know manufacturing every decision and then in the long run i think every food company should be thinking about investments i think because chris has touched on this chris has said many times there's no easy solution right everything is going to require sort of long-term thinking and strategic responses and i just think Every food company of every stripe needs to be thinking about what sort of investments can be made that help to address the problems we see and the problems that are largely looming. So I'm talking about investments that um, reduce dependency on labor, investments that in things like vertical farming that reduce the impact of energy prices and severe weather on crops. I just want to see more of this happening in preparation for the future and, and what's coming and the challenges that are, that are down the road. Thank you so much. And, and Chris, you know, for the industry, what would be your your one piece of advice? So Ricky was able to get more than one, so I'm going to get more than one as well. Ah. Okay. I'm just going to keep it to two, actually. It was interesting because, you know, Ricky, you talked about really analysing data. Absolutely agree with it. And I think it is also for a lot of food companies to better understand their supply chains now and look at all of the single points of failure that they have. Because I've talked to so many companies and I've said, my supplier has let me down, my supplier has let me down. And I'm just thinking is, where's your second, where's your third supplier? Have you really thought this through? And most companies haven't. You know, it's about relationships, it's about price. And I'm telling people, really start to map your single points of failure now because, you know, you they're going to keep happening. And the second thing, probably, you know, uh, marries on nicely to, to one of Ricky's piece of advice in terms of investment. And to me, the investment is around automation. The food industry uses a lot of people, a lot of hands-on. And again, I've talked to a lot of companies recently. I was talking to them 10 years ago about robotics, actually. And they were, no, no. He said, we don't manufacture cars, we manufacture food. Actually, Advanced manufacturing is all about robotics and think of the food industry as, as something that has to move into advanced manufacturing space. Thank you so much, Chris, as well. Yeah, we have been as an as an industry a little bit slower on the uptake with, you know, industry 4.0 and, and kind of robotics. But I think, you know, we've had that's a really, really great piece of advice. And Ricky, thank you so much. You know, a lovely recommendations there as well. Thank you so much for your time, both of you. It's been an absolute pleasure to have such experts on these areas as guests on our podcast, you know, for giving your insight on this very difficult topic, you know, not shutting me down when I'm asking you the hard questions. 
<laughs> I very much enjoyed it. If you're okay, Beth, and just in terms of the statistics war, come can Ricky and I just call it a draw? Um, I mean, I didn't intend to pit you against one another, but you know, I, I'm loving a bit of healthy competition. We'll review it and come back to you as to who's the winner and has won the the golden new food cup. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for the invitation, Chris. It was really great meeting you. And uh, yeah, I hope to do it again sometime. Okay, Josh. So there you have it. Going on my own. How did I do? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, very well. First ride without the stabilizers on. I thought it was a. Uh, thought it was brilliant. I'd full faith. Who started this podcast, Josh? <laughs> yeah, I, I'd full faith. I'd full faith. Um, not your first radio, is it? No, but despite again, we joke, but frightening, isn't it? It was a cracking interview, and obviously, as I said in the intro, you've got two of the sort of the foremost minds in terms of the food industry there for you. I had no doubt the interview would be brilliant in terms of its content, but it was it was frightening. I mean, as Chris said, the energy and Russia sort of dual crises have perhaps put the UK in a more vulnerable position and had a more impact than the US. Obviously, Ricky was was less concerned. Listeners, you can't see this on the audio, obviously, but I wonder, Beth, if we should release the, the video footage because Ricky's face when Chris was rattling off the inflation statistics was superb. I've never seen a man more shocked or horrified. He was certainly surprised. It was It did bring a smile to my face during what was quite a worrying segment. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I think what's lovely about New Food and our podcast is that we get the insight from around the world and comparing where we are in the UK and the US. And and what was also lovely about this was Ricky and Chris got on so well. And, you know, I can imagine knowing those two that there'll be some collaborations coming up in the future, which is exactly what we need in a time of crisis, more collaboration, more harmonisation across the globe. Absolutely. One thing I will say, Beth, is, and it was quite a long interview, but you mentioned unrest with, with both Chris and Ricky. I'm afraid I have to agree with Chris. I can really see it coming down the tracks. And I've been thinking about this for some weeks now. This might sound a bit silly, but bear with me. Um, I wasn't alive during the 1980s. Obviously, those at home that were might know more than me, probably will know more than me. But all of those kind of factors that just bubble away in the background before coming to the top just seem to be happening. I don't know about you, Beth, and our bins have not been collected for a few weeks. That kind of thing gets under people's skin. You go to the supermarket and food is a lot more expensive than it used to be. I've noticed that things aren't on offer, Beth, I don't know about you. That's kind of where I've noticed it. Things that were on offer, like, for example, coffee, which, I listen, it's not an essential well, maybe it's for me, but it's, it's not a staple for people. I, I get that. But where you might be able to pick up a bag of coffee on offer, you just can't do that anymore. And we've spoken on this podcast about whether coffee should be cheap or whether it shouldn't be. But things like that, I think, are going to hit people very hard. And then we get the news today that the price cap on energy has just gone through the roof in the UK. And I think the situation is quite similar in Europe too. I, I can really see, especially in the winter, I can really see unrest coming. And, and Chris's dilemma that he posed is just heartbreaking. Having to choose between unsafe food and, and hunger is, to be honest with you, it's ridiculous for what is a top 10 world economy in the UK. It's absolutely scandalous. To prove his point as well, I don't know if you've noticed this, but our our story on whether you can eat mouldy bread or not, which I would encourage listeners to check out, not to take advice from, but because it's interesting. That's one of the most read in the last two months. I don't know if that's a coincidence or whether it's it's not. I hope it is a coincidence because if it isn't, that's, that's very sad. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um... Josh and some really 
great insight from you there. We're exactly the same, like with the bins. And, and yeah, I've, I've noticed in the supermarkets what, what you're saying, you know, being the case. And yeah, I mean, sadly, I'm um, inclined to agree with you and Chris. I hope that the three of us are wrong. So what I wanted to do really was this has been a really difficult podcast in terms of it's been really great to, to put on, but it's such a it's such a. I suppose a just a heartbreaking topic. So I thought let's add a bit of um end on a, a positive nice note, shall we? Yeah, why not? Absolutely. We need some of that. Okay. So I you may have heard at the end of the interview, I I couldn't possibly rule who could be crowned winner on the the statistic off, um, as I'll call it, um, you know, and awarded the New Food Golden Cup, which definitely does exist, and I didn't make it up on the spot. It's beautiful and um, very fantastic. <laughs> Could you have any thoughts on this? Um, you know, I couldn't, couldn't judge without my without my host. As an adjudicator, I tell you what, there were some there were some stats rattled off there, weren't there? I mean, we do require that. Regular listeners will absolutely know that mainly me, I, I tend to come up with opinions on the spot with very little in the way of scientific analysis to back it up. I'm a history graduate, not a biology graduate or a scientist, so that's probably where that comes from. So I was mightily impressed by both Chris and Ricky. Just right off, Ricky's wrapped enough carbon dioxide and refrigerated truck stats just off the bat. And also, important to mention, it's like 6am in the morning in California. What an effort. It just knows the cost of refrigerated truck transport. Just like that. It just has in, in, in reachable distance. I was very impressed. I think for that and the fact that it was 6am, you might have to go Ricky, I would say. Ooh. Unless we get them together and we sort of do like a joint lifting. You know, like the two high jumpers in the Olympics last year got two gold medals. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can do that. Yeah. Is there budget for two cups? Uh, we could cut it in half. Like, yeah. Uh, is it is it King Solomon? Is that the famous story? Let's Let's do that. That's that's the famous story. Should we do that? Let's do Should the Solomon test, and the one that goes, oh no no no, the other one can have it. They can have the cup. All right. So I've got the saw poised. Should I not saw it in half then? No. I mean, who would have thought it on this pod? You get you get food inflation stats, you get political analysis, and you get your biblical parable as well. And it's just it's a one stop shop, isn't it? You get everything. It's everything you could you could ask for. I think we are. You know, Scott Mills, move aside. Right, as I said, everything cover all. We're doing we're doing a bit of singing next. We are the new Scott and Chris. That's it. If you if you listen to Radio One, that that's who we are now. Absolutely, get us involved. So I think we should. It's probably quite enough of that. So <laughs> let's let's <laughs> let's close it while we're on a roll, while we're still feeling cocky. So if you've got any questions or thoughts about what we discussed today, why don't you leave a comment below? We love to hear from our listeners, and if you're a new listener to New Food, welcome. And why not subscribe so you can always stay up to date and never miss anything such as, you know, our uh, biblical references, our <laughs> science and our wonderful senses of, of humour. Absolutely. Bethany, if I could just as well put in a, another request. If you are struggling, there are there is plenty of help around. Whether you live in the UK or in Europe, there will be an equivalent. Don't be afraid to, to reach out and help because it is, it's tough for everyone and I, I feel it's only going to get tougher. So if you do need some help, have a little bit of a research. There'll definitely be an organisation local to you that will be able to help out. Well said, Josh, absolutely. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just type in the new food podcast. Thanks again for tuning in for your segment of Food To Go, and we'll be back for another episode in early September. And remember, you can also stay up to date with everything food and 
beverage business related by visiting our website www.newfoodmagazine.com for videos, webinars and long and short reads. Uh, the URL is in the description below. Until next time, it's bye from me. And it's goodbye from me too.